Well, good morning. Uh, it is uh, is great to have with us this morning uh, Mary Barr, who was in the hospital last week at this time. Mary, we're glad you're back, and uh, we continue to pray for your recovery. And uh, it's also good to have with us Georgia Eden, who was also in the hospital last week at this time, uh, and who is uh, uh, under wraps at the moment, but will be available for viewing at a later time. Before I get on with uh, our sermon on Parshat Sav, uh, some of you may have heard that there's this new book out this week uh, by a guy named Rob Bell out in uh, Michigan uh, called Love Wins. And if you have been anywhere on the blogosphere in the last couple weeks, you know that there has been a tremendous amount of controversy over this book. What was especially interesting was that there was a tremendous amount of controversy over this book before the book came out based on what people anticipated was going to be in the book based on a two-minute video that had uh, had been shot. Um, and so uh, now that the book is actually out, now people are able to have discussions about the contents of the book based on what is in fact in the book, not just on what one expected to be in the book or one might have heard was in the book based on advanced copies that some people got a hold of. Um, I will be addressing uh, at length and in some detail uh, my thoughts on the contents of this book. And I just spoke this week with my colleague, Frank Boswell, who's the pastor of Hunt Valley Church out uh, in Hunt Valley. Um, funny that. Uh, uh, Frank, uh, Frank and I are going to be doing something next month uh, where we'll have a, an event where people can come and, and talk about the book and we can discuss it, maybe answer some questions. Um, what I would encourage you to do, um, if you have not read the book, um, certainly before you spout any opinions about it, you should probably read it. At the very least, you should not be a jerk like that. Um, and if you have questions that you have about the book or if you have opinions about the book, having read it, I uh, would invite you to be in conversation and thoughtful conversation and respectful conversation and appreciative conversation with one another, with me, with other people out in the big wide world about this book, because unfortunately there has been quite a lot of vitriol and uh, there has been a lot of uh, name calling on both sides, but especially among those who are not inclined to see the book favorably. So uh, I, in, in the hopes that people would actually read the book, um, we, uh, we purchased a few copies, we've got some over there. Um, if you uh, haven't gotten one yet and you want to make sure you do read this. And if this is all news to you for the first time, really, that's, that's okay. Uh, this book raises some very important issues, but there is nothing new in this book. So it's not like we've been waiting around for 2,000 years since the revelation of the word in the person of Jesus Christ uh, as step one, and then step two is Rob Bell's new book. So... <laughs> To, you know, when, when I say that this is a potentially important book, this is also probably not an important book in the way that, like, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics was important. Um, this is not probably a book that anybody is going to care anything about 25 years from now. But right now, this seems to be a significant point of contention. So, as people who love Jesus, as people who are uh, respectful uh, members of his community, who care about the integrity of his community, uh, and who care about... Um, 
the fact that uh, if he did say some things, we should probably take them seriously. Uh, I would commend to you the proper consideration of the book. So are there any questions about that? Just about the methodology. Yes, Jeremy. What's that? Oh, in, in sometime next month, uh, Frank and I have to put some, some uh, you know, coordinate our calendars. So roughly a month from now, our thought was that we wanted to give folks a few weeks at least to, to read the book, to think about it, maybe read some of the stuff that's been written about it for and against. Um, so uh, I know that there are some people who, I mean, you know, the, in a lot of ways, I read somebody who said that, that uh, this book is kind of like the you know, papers he used to write in college with, you know, wide margins and lots of white space. So it, it kind of, even though it's almost 200 pages, it really is, you know, not. Um, so uh, it, it's not like it's going to take you a long time to work through the book. But on the other hand, it does raise some important issues. And there are a number of biblical references that he makes in there that you'll probably want to chase down and see if they are uh, as he says they are. Because, again, people have been arguing about that as well. All right. Okay, I'll add this one to the stack. So Parshat Sav, we are here in the book of Leviticus, in the second chapter of it. And uh, as, a, as a way of clarification, uh, in your, uh, on your bulletins it says that this starts in chapter 6, verse 1. It actually starts in our Bibles in verse 8. In the Hebrew Bible, there are a few places where the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible diverge in their numbering of the verses. And this is one of those places. This is verse 1 in the Hebrew Bibles, but verse 8 for us. So I imagine some of you were up late at night worrying about that. I'm glad that I can set your, cell, your hearts at, at peace. You all right there, Chris? Good. Good. Okay. So Yahweh said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night. Till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. So, still a reading comprehension exercise. What is it that the priest is supposed to do? Keep the fire burning. There's some songs about that. Keep the fire burning. All right, can't go out. All right, what else? What else is the priest doing here? Dumping the ashes. Dumping the ashes and and uh, th- there may well be a song about that here. Good to know that people are paying attention. So keep the fire burning. We got new markers, so if you can't read this, it's just my handwriting. Dumping the ashes from stuff burned by said fire. What else? What's that? The priest has to put on the appropriate clothes. Don't get ahead of me. 
What's that? He has to remove the appropriate clays. It's not known whether the stripper had been written at the time of Leviticus. So putting on and removing clothing. What kind of clothing specifically? Linen clothing. And what types of linen clothing? Underwear. Right? Outerwear and underwear. All you fashionistas. God cares about this stuff too. What else is the priest doing here? Taking the ashes outside the camp. So not only, and that's dumping ashes, right? He has to dump the ashes outside the camp, or outside the tent. In a clean place. Richly clean place. Yep. What else? What's that? Yeah, he's got to put wood on the fire. That's part of keeping the fire burning, but, but what are the two things that go on the fire? So he's putting wood on the fire and he's putting fat on the fire. Right? He's also, what else is he going to put on the fire? Sort of implied here, what? Burnt offerings. He's putting offerings on the fire. Not just fat. Basically, the deal is you burn up, you know, all the fat, all the fat. God, God's like Elvis. He really wants all the fat. Uh, and then uh, the, the portions that are designated to be the burnt offerings, those also go on the fire. Right, so for example, when a priest, we read in this passage, uh, when a pri- you know when when an ordinary person comes to make the offering, the priest gets a portion of that. The person gets a portion of that. Some of that's burned up. Uh, when a priest makes an offering, it all has to get burned up, okay? Because you know the priest is making his own offering. He doesn't get a doesn't get a cut of that. What what else is the priest doing in this passage? Right, he's removing the ashes. Anything else? Yeah, well, he, yeah, he turns it into smoke. Um, that, that's the burning. I'm sorry. I'm, I, let, let me move on to the next passage that reminds me. <laughs> sorry. It's not like... <laughs> you guys got the cheap Bibles. doesn't have the extra verses in there. Okay, so here's the next. Let's, let's look at the next uh, paragraph, chapter uh, verse 14. These are the regulations for the grain offering. Uh, that would help. Aaron's sons are to bring it before Yahweh in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of fine flour and oil, together with all the incense of the grain offering, and burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to Yahweh. Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it, but it is to be eaten without yeast in a holy place. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I have given it as their share of the offerings made to me by fire, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. It is most holy." Any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. It is his regular share of the offerings made to Yahweh by fire for the generations to come. Whatever touches them will become holy. Or another way you could read that is whoever touches them must be holy. And Yahweh also said to Moses, This is the offering Aaron and his sons are to bring to Yahweh on the day that he's anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. Prepare it with oil and a griddle. Bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken in pieces as an aroma pleasing to Yahweh. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It is Yahweh's regular share and is to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. All right, so what do we have going on in this passage? Pancakes, exactly. But what kind of pancakes? Unleavened pancakes. Have you ever had unleavened pancakes? 
Yeah. That's why they're burned up completely. <laughs> Evidently, God is into unleavened pancakes. But yeah, doesn't say anything about syrup. I don't know how many maple trees were growing around the Sinai Desert. Um, yeah, making pancakes. That's basically what we're talking about. So the priests have to make pancakes. What else do the priests do? They get to eat some, yep. Right? They get to eat. And what do they eat? Yeah, what do they eat, though? I know at your age it's hard to hear clearly. What do they eat? Yeah, they don't get to eat the pancakes. They get to eat... Matzo, matzo, man. Yeah, unleavened bread. Yeah, we got matzo. They're basically eating the matzo. And they got to make the matzo, too. Put an H on there if you like. Well, no, that's the, that's the unleavened flour bread, and you, you spread oil on the matzo to make it palatable. I mean, have you ever had plain matzo? You kind of have to do something to it. Yeah. Right? Okay, so they're eating, so they're making some of these grain portions. They're eating these. What else are they doing? They're burning them. Let's not forget that. They're also putting the grain offerings on the fire. And what's in those grain offerings? Do you remember? What's that? Frankincense, yes. Oil, so flour, oil, and frankincense. Right? You got the grain. You got the oil, make the grain burn up, and you got the frankincense to provide a a pleasing aroma. Another word for pleasing there is a soothing aroma. You get that when uh, the meat is burned up on the altar, it pro- provides a pleasing or a soothing aroma. The idea is that God's wrath is being appeased by the scent of these sacrifices that are being offered. Mary? Yeah. Right, um, but in this particular application, it's just getting burned up. Yeah, uh, among, I mean, there are a number of things that are used in different ways, and, and uh, some of them are, are designated to be used for, for the offerings. Yeah, Louise? Right, well, they don't get to eat their own. That's the thing. They're, they get to eat a portion of what somebody, so, you know, Joe Israelite shows up and makes his grain offering. The way that the priests are supported, remember, God doesn't give the Levites any land. When he divvies up the land, we're going to get to this coming up next. When he divvies up the the land in numbers, the Levites aren't going to be given a portion. Why? Because it's their job to be the priests, right? So then how do they support themselves if they're not going to have any land to farm, right? They They have no place to put their goats. They have no place to grow their crops. They are supported by the people. So when the people provide an offering... Right? When they bring an offering to the temple, a portion of that is given to the priests in order to provide for them. Right? But when the priests are giving their own offering, they're not, they don't get to take a cut of that for themselves because they're giving the offering uh, for their own consecration. All right? Make sense? Burn up completely. God gets all of it. Right? That's the unleavened pancakes. Try it sometime. Try making pancakes unleavened. You won't do it again. I once went to the Belloc and I had these literally unedible, inedible pancakes. I think they had made them with that leaven. Um, <clears throat> okay, so now we know what literally the priests are doing. Symbolically, or in terms of the broader meaning of what is going on here, what are the priests doing? Yeah. 
Ah, they're being intercessors. Okay, so they're mediate. Okay, give me more. Tell me more about what you mean by that. <laughs> right. Right. Ah, very good. What's that? They're God's brokers, right? They're working the deal out between God and the people. Okay, they're the mediators. So you have in between God and the people, you have the priests. Well, they are public servants, yes, um, and uh, and they are kind of unionized, as a matter of fact. But but they they are they are, uh, they, are they are serving the public. By enabling the people to approach God in an acceptable way, and they are uh, enabling God's grace to be ministered to the people in the ways that God's ordained, right? So God has, has told them how they're going to set up the tabernacle, where they're going to worship. He's told them how they are going to present the necessary sacrifices, both the, the regular ongoing ones that, that you just kind of always have going for the people, and the ones that are brought when somebody has a particular uh, issue that they need to atone for, um, as well as, as we're going to see coming up in, in chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, the most holy day, uh, when the sins of the people are dealt with uh, overall. But, but here, uh, we see the priests are ministering to the people by enabling them to present acceptable worship to God and by ministering God's grace to the people uh, in in that whole process. So the things that they're doing here, when they keep the fire burning, right? When they put the wood on the fire, the fat on the fire, the offer, they're they're just they're keeping this whole thing going. This whole temple cultus is the, the technical word. But basically this Israelite religion. They're making it all work. And in order to do that, right, they need to maintain the proper distinction between the holy and the unholy. Once again, a reminder, you've got this courtyard for the tent of meeting. There's the tent itself. Inside the tent, you have the ark. You have outside, and this is the, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And then in the holy place, you have the lampstand. You have the altar of incense. You have the table with the showbread. Does your typical Israelite go in here? No, no. This is only the only the priest who has to go in, and 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 you know trim the wicks, who has to put incense on the altar, who has to replace the showbread. That's the only reason somebody's going to go in there. The holy of holies, as we're going to see in chapter sixteen, only one person goes in once a, once a year, and that's the high priest. There's a big thick curtain here, big thick curtains all around here. Now on the outside, you have the altar. For the burnt offerings, you also have a, a laver, a big circular basin where you, where you uh, can, can do the necessary washings. But the altar probably had some steps on it so you could get up to it because it was a big sucker because you had a whole lot of meat that was getting grilled on this thing. And the altar is now people who are going to come and make their offering are going to be in here in the courtyard. But other than that, that's also really the priest's turf, the priest's are the ones who need to be in here performing the service for this for the tabernacle. The people, if they have to come in, if they have an offering to bring, they come in and then they do their business and then they leave. 
The idea is that there are these concentric circles of holiness, right? This is the most holy place. This is the holy place. This is pretty darn holy. And then this is, you know, this is where the people live. But then, in a sense, the encampment of the people is also going to be holy. Why? Here's where this gets interesting. If you look in chapter 19 of Exodus, flipping back, right before Moses comes down with the 15 commandments they encamp there in the desert in front of the mountain then Moses went up to God and Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob what you're to tell the people of Israel you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites, God says. So you, God says, to the whole nation of Israel, let you plural, are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in the way that... You know, all this stuff, this, this whole, you know, putting on the clothes, taking off the clothes, this is part of maintaining this ritual holiness. You've got certain clothes that are, are used for specific holy purposes. You've got certain implements that are used for particular purposes. Only, only that, nothing else. You've got an entire, uh, entire uh, tribe consecrated to be holy for the purpose of service in the temple. But then God, even before he gives us all this stuff, he just blows it wide open, doesn't he? He says, not just this one nation, or not just this one tribe of Levi, but this whole nation is going to serve as priests. Now, is it just me, or does that not make any sense in light of what the priests do here? If the people of Israel need priests in order for them to worship God acceptably... How can they be priests themselves? Yes, Tim. Yeah. So I think Jeremy, go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think that's the you know there's there, there's a tension that's sort of that's not explicitly resolved in the text. It's not like God comes in later and says. Okay, so what I meant when I said that you're going to be priests and they're also going to have these other Levites being priests. No, I think there's a sense in which then the people of Israel can enable God, can be uh, agents of God's grace to the world and help the world to be able to accept a holy God acceptably with reverence and awe. I think that's... that is kind of the best sense I can make of it. It's like you have ESPN. Like, funny you should mention that. If you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter, remember we talked uh, last week about how in order to make sense of what's going on in Leviticus for us, one reason that Leviticus is often dry and dusty is we don't look at what God was doing then what he's doing now, and what he was doing between then and now. 
All right? 1 Peter chapter 2. We read this. Starting in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You look on the cover of your bulletins. That's a priest hoodie. That's different. You're being built to be a holy priesthood. And what do the priests do? They offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? Priests offer sacrifices in order for the people to be able to be in right relationship with the Holy God in order for God's grace to be mediated to the people. Right? Well, Peter says, this is what you're doing. You're offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For, in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So then, God had specific priests, the Levites, one tribe designated to be priests for the whole people Israel. And then he had his people in some sort of a priestly function with respect to the rest of the world. That's what he was doing then. Right now, Peter says, we, all of us, are being called to serve as a priesthood. What was he doing in between then and now? Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the correct answer. Jesus, between then and now, because of Jesus, we can offer these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are, Peter says, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, my dear friends. Now, the problem, though, in order to make sense of how you get from then to now, okay, you got this Jesus thing, but what do you do with this issue of concentric circles of holiness? Chris? And I think there, there is a sense in which there is still a vocation, a calling, there's still a function that includes some of the kinds of things that the priests would have done in terms of study and teaching and all that. Thank you. Well, there's that, too. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Anybody remember what happened when, so when Jesus dies? The veil. Which veil is that? This one. This veil. You know, if everybody's special, nobody's special. So, yeah, the veil was torn, right? We read it in the, in the gospel. It says that this veil 
was torn. This veil was probably the most important veil because that separated the Holy of Holies, sort of the most direct access to God you're going to get. That could only be accessed once a year by the high priest and only when he was bringing with him the blood of the atonement sacrifice. This is the big deal. This curtain is torn. And because of that, the writer of Hebrews tells us, because of that, uh, we have, and I love this word, the, the Greek is parasia, but uh, you could also say chutzpah. This is chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, since we have the chutzpah to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. All the stuff that the priests did in order to enable the people to be in right relationship with God. If we take the writer of Hebrews seriously, we have to accept Jesus did in himself. That blood that had to be sprinkled on the atonement cover day or year after year after year. Jesus did once and that was it. In, in sort of the metaphorical heavenly temple of which this is a copy. So this veil is torn. What does that do to the idea of concentric circles of holiness? Completely destroys them. Completely blows them up. To the point that there is no piece of real estate any more holy than any other. That may be a little disturbing. I mean, I remember the time I suggested we play cards on the porch here at the church, and some people found that really uncomfortable. There is no place that is more sacred than any other because this very notion of sanctified space is completely exploded when Jesus tears the veil. Now, there are places that are properly designated for certain activities and should be given the proper respect. The chair in your den where you watch football, for example. But the idea that we can only access God in certain places is completely exploded, completely blown up. The access we have to God, we have directly through Jesus, anywhere and everywhere. But again, the point of this, if we go back to First Peter, the point of this is not just so that we can be in right relationship with God, important as that is, right? The idea is not just that we now can be acceptable to God and worship him properly and that God's grace can be mediated directly to us because you really, you don't need this priest anymore because Jesus took that necessity away. He is our high priest. He's also God, so we're good. Yes? I might not. Yeah, there's uh, on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, you don't find uh, any uh, goats being sacrificed. So we'll get to that. Okay. All right, stay tuned. It's coming. But the, the point of this, right, is not just so that we get our Jesus thing on, 
What does a priest do? A priest provides, offers holy worship. A priest serves. Peter continues saying, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though may, they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. See, it, it's not like God can't minister his grace directly to people who are outside his people. I mean, that's us, basically. But he still calls his people to be about inviting those who are not his people to be in that right relationship with him. And he is about calling his people to minister his grace to them. Peter goes on to say that each one, and this is in chapter 4, each one should use whatever gift he's received for what purpose? So that he can really worship God well and get his God thing on. Is that what he says? Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Remember when Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. We talked about this in the John series, right? Notwithstanding what you may have heard at funerals, what are those rooms probably? When Jesus' followers would have heard him say, in my Father's house there are many rooms, they would have been thinking of what? The temple. Yeah, the temple is just basically a tabernacle you know, in, made, made with uh, more durable building materials in a non-portable form. And, and you had along the sides, sort of the, the architectural innovation of the temple is you had along the sides here a whole bunch of what? Rooms. You actually had multiple levels of rooms. And these rooms were used for what? For storage. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's kind of how the Levites decided they'd have like a little self-store thing on the side of the temple. <laughs> Um, no, it's used for storage of the implements used in worship and for, you know, I, I imagine the dressing and undressing probably happened in a fairly modest fashion. You know, I guess in the, in the, you know, in the wilderness, the priest might kind of go, you know, back behind the curtain or something. But, but you know, it, when, when this ministry is happening, there's all sorts of stuff that's involved in making it work, right? If you were ever in a, in a, in a uh, more traditional church and there's the sacristy, there's like the little room off to the side, that's where the priest puts on his vestments and where the, the communion wine gets poured and all that stuff. Well, you know, it's a lot more complicated when you're butchering a bunch of animals. So uh, this service is what's going on in these rooms. This is priests do what, that's what priests do. They serve. They administer God's grace in its various forms. And so, Peter says, and this is, this is really sobering, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen? This is the kind of priesthood that we get called to be and to do and to live out. So we're going to take communion now as part of the priesthood of all believers. We all take this together. It's made possible by God himself 
instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we will, if you'll stand with me, along with God's people throughout the ages, affirm the things we believe to be true that He has taught us, that we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He was incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We'll have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I invite you to come up and receive the elements. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, and the bread is unleavened.